Well, hello, Central, and hello for everybody else tuning in online. My name's Ernie. I've attended Central here for a number of years, and uh, it's such a privilege to share with you this morning. Thank you for taking the time out of your day. You know, uh, Pastor Matt chose a sermon series to be on the Minor Prophets. We have to remember the Minor Prophets are not called that because they are of less significance, but rather because their books are a little bit shorter than that, say, of the Major Prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, um, Daniel. Um, so the Bible is made up of 66 books, 40 different authors, writing over 1,500 years, three different languages, three different continents, and yet we will see is there's one common narrative throughout, which we will see a little bit more uh, today. You know, I said to my wife, Tomiko, um, I said, Tomiko, there, there are 12 minor prophets to choose from. I don't know which one to choose to teach from. And she didn't hesitate for a second. She said, Micah. I said, Micah, why is that? She says, well, Micah 6 verse 8, that's my favorite verse in the Bible. You know, having been married for 25 years, I probably should have known that. So I said, uh, you know, I told her I'd check it out for both my interest and, of course, to show respect for her because you know what they say, guys, happy wife. That's right, happy life. So we are going to look at uh, what's going on in Micah's day and then spend some time in Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. See, Micah was a prophet who lived and wrote this book about 700 B.C. He would have been prophesying during the same time as Isaiah and Amos. Micah 1.1 sets the scene. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. You see, about 200 years previous to this being written, there were the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 kingdoms, and they divided. There were the 10 northern kingdoms, which were known as uh, Israel, with the capital in Samaria. There were the two southern kingdoms, which were known as Judah, with the capital in Jerusalem. Moresheth, uh, where, where Micah was from, was just near Jerusalem. But Micah points out that he's writing this to the, both the north and the southern kingdoms to all of the Israelites. So Micah lived in the town of Moresheth, not far from Jerusalem, and these kingdoms were not only occupied by the Israelites, constant pressure from the Assyrians and other regions resulted in a multi-ethnic, multi-religious society. Although the worship of Yahweh and the temple activity were central to the culture, many Israelites had become immersed in the society of the day, a society that was promiscuous, a society that had abandoned the care of the widows and orphans, leaving them to a life of poverty. Micah warns that the Assyrians were, are going to invade, wiping out the whole northern kingdom and subsequently the uh, city of Jerusalem. And he also warns that the Babylonians are going to invade as well the southern kingdom and remove the Israelites into exile. All of this because the people had broken their covenant with God. They had become wealthy through theft and greed, both the political and the religious leaders. Now, the Israelites did follow some of the commandments handed down from Moses. You know, they'd continue with the sacrifices, the rituals, the food, the clothing, and observing certain holy days. All of this while they continued to embrace the many things that the culture around them had to offer. They were really good at the what of religion, but they'd forgotten all about the why. So Micah lives in a small town. He identifies what kings reign during his life, those who read about in other books of the Old Testament. And Micah is a righteous man. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he brings a prophetic word to the people. Now in the first few chapters, he lays out the issues and, and the coming consequences, including the total destruction of these capital cities. We see in Micah 1.5, all this 
is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. You see, these capital cities, these royal cities, were experiencing the most sinful behavior. And Micah delivers his observations that despite God's goodness to them, the people had broken covenant with God, and he warns of coming judgment. Now, we don't know how many people responded favorably to Micah because ultimately these regions are successfully invaded, but we will see in a few minutes that some of the people were convicted to repent. Now, it isn't all doom and gloom and warning of coming disaster. Micah also promises hope. You see, he shares how God will become the good shepherd. In Micah 2.12, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. And again in Micah 4 and 5, God promises a new Jerusalem that will be a meeting place of heaven and earth where people of all nations gather. And this new Jerusalem will be ruled by a messianic king from the line of David. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from the old, from ancient of days. Now who does that sound like? That's right. Absolutely, Micah prophesies of the coming of Jesus Christ. 700 years prior to his arrival as a baby in a manger, God already had his plan of redemption for you and for me. Doesn't that bring a bit of comfort? That yes, you know, God is within time, in, concerned about our, our day-to-day and our moment-by-moment, but God is also outside of time, already loving us in our future. So we have the warnings as well as the hope, which brings us to chapter 6. God lays out his indictment, the people respond, and then Micah proclaims a radical new idea. So let's check it out. I'm going to reread this now. Micah 6, verse 1 to 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. The Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. And here's what the Lord says. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shetham to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now here's the response of the people. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So God reminds the people of his goodness. And what is the response of the guilty? We will sacrifice more sheep. We will offer oceans full of oil. We'll kill. What are we going to kill? We'll kill our firstborn for you. You see what's happening here? These people have become so accustomed to doing religion, to making sacrifices, that when they are confronted with their sinful ways, their go-to is to give more, sacrifice more. The Jewish nation was never asked for human sacrifice. But some religions of the day did. So, I, you know, I guess throwing in your firstborn seems like a very spiritual thing to do. 
As a side note, I wonder why it seemed reasonable to pay for sinfulness by sacrificing your own children. You know, mankind is sinful. Children are born sinful. So besides the cruelty of the act, does it seem reasonable that a sinful man can pay the price for sinful man? You know, there was only one man, Jesus Christ, who came to earth and who by his virtue of being without sin offered himself as a sacrifice for sinful man. He died on the cross, he rose again, and is the only suitable payment for the redemption of sins. Let's remember, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He created man with a free will. Man chose to rebel against God. We call it sin. Since that time, for thousands of years, man has been separated from holy God because of that sinfulness. You know, there's a few verses in Romans that, that describe the, the Christian gospel really well. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our state. There's nothing we can do about it. And there's a consequence to that in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And God loved us enough that he didn't leave us there because in Romans 5.8 it says, God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it's not enough just to know about it. We have to respond. Romans 10.9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. I know that there's someone watching right here today that has not yet made a decision to follow Christ, has not yet surrendered life to Christ. If that's you today, I just ask the Holy Spirit to, to impact your heart. If you've walked away from your faith, or if that's you today, I just ask. I'm gonna say a prayer, and I'd invite you to join me uh, in saying that. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Right now, I turn from my sins and I open the door of my heart and my life. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Amen. If you pray that prayer today, it's awesome. Your life will never be the same. We'd love to hear from you. Please uh, feel free. Contact one of the pastors, one of the elders, church office, even myself, and, uh, and just let us know that you've made this decision. We'd love to uh, talk about next steps or even uh, discuss some, uh, discover some answers to questions that you may have. It's wonderful. Uh, where were we? Back to our text, right? Back to our text. Micah, Micah, where are we here? Uh, here we go. The Israelites, God's chosen people, are messing up big time. Micah brings God's charge to them, and then we read their response. What's the response? It says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, calves a year old, thousands of rams, rivers of oil? Or shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my sin? The Israelites wanted to do the same thing that we often do. When faced with our wrongdoings, our sinfulness, rather than seek to change the root of our sin, we try to just do more stuff act better, you know, give more to church, kind of get my act together a little bit. I love this quotation by Matthew Henry. He says, men will part with anything rather than their sins. What sin am I, are we, holding on to? 
You know, I know drunkenness or my alcoholism. You know, it's a problem, but, but I can't give up wine. You know, it just sits the mood at dinner time. Or I know my sexual lust and my viewing pornography is a problem. But I can't give up my Instagram account or my unfiltered access to, to the internet or, or Netflix. I realize that self-medicating for my stress and anxiety isn't healthy and it might be getting worse, but you know, I can kind of keep it under control. No one needs to know. Perhaps losing my temper is a problem, but I can't let anyone know what really goes on in our household. Maybe I, I, you know, I know I should use my time more effectively, you know, with sharing the gospel or helping people, but I'm pretty comfortable in my retirement. Patterns of poor behavior are difficult to change. You know, maybe I'll just try a little harder. I'll sacrifice more sheep. No, no. What is needed is for you to seek repentance from God. Then seek out Christian brothers and sisters or perhaps counselors and doctors if required and allow them by God's grace to bring tools of healing and accountability. So Micah goes on to point out that they have it all wrong. God's desire isn't for more sacrifice. You know, in the book of Leviticus, it lays out five offerings or sacrifices that the Israelites have been practicing for over 500 years. There had been continuous sacrificing of animals, a never-ending fire on the altar. So why was sacrifice even necessary? Well, the why of sacrifice is a study in itself. But the basics would be an innocent animal being killed, its life's blood receiving special treatment, and that blood was seen as a covering a covering for the sinfulness of the individual. These animal sacrifices were not a way to appease God, you know, like a scene from an Indiana Jones movie or something, but, but, but rather these sacrifices offered a temporary covering so that sinful people could approach a holy God. The impact on the people was to be a daily reminder of their sinfulness and the transformation of their hearts to pursue God. Unfortunately, for the majority of Israelites, the constant aroma of sacrifices, the seasonal trips to the tabernacle, the observation of annual celebrations had just become routine. For some of us, it's kind of like going to church or celebrating Christmas or Easter. You know, they went through the motions, but, but their hearts had ceased to be open to the transformational power of God. Sacrifice had stopped transforming hearts. In Matthew 9, 13, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God wasn't after outward sacrifices. He was and is after our hearts. These rituals weren't supposed to be an end, but rather a means to commune with God and transform the heart. You know, there's nothing wrong with good spiritual disciplines or, or posture of praise if they aren't seen as the end, but rather the beginning. You know, getting on our knees when we pray is good if it works to humble our hearts. But it's not good if it just feeds my ego, you know, makes me look good in front of other people, or maybe, God, I'm on my knees, you gotta answer me now. You know, reading a daily devotion is a good thing if it opens our hearts and minds to the leading God's, of God's spirit, but, but it's not good if it's just a way of, of making us feel good about ourselves or checking off something off our to-do list for the day. You know, how many other spiritual things do we say or do, like saying grace before a meal, singing worship songs, participating in Christian marriage or Christian funeral services, you know, that have just become routine and they lack any sort of heart intent. So God's made his case. The people have responded with their ideas, which were shot down by Micah. And there he is shaking his head. You guys just don't get it, do you? God doesn't need your stuff. He doesn't need your sacrifices if it's not accompanied with the right heart. And because you're still missing it, I'm going to make it simple for you. 
Likely in any aspect of life, they're the basics. You know, the KISS method, keep it simple, stupid. Um, I fly airplanes for a living. Um, I remember being on a course for a new aircraft just a couple of years ago. We had a, completed the ground school and now it was time for my first simulator session. It didn't go well. I was so far behind the airplane, I was overwhelmed with systems, procedures, and information. It was a roller coaster ride. So before my next session, I reflected on my nearly crashing and burning, and, and I had to stop and remember the basics of flying, you know, just attitude, airspeed, power setting. That's it. Keep it simple. I asked a farmer friend his take on this. You know, you can be inundated with lots of technology, numbers, feed conversions, marketing, fancy equipment. And when things start to, get, start to get overwhelming or systems fall apart, you just got to remember a few things, he says, for your livestock. He says nutrition, environment, and mental health. Well, it's similar in our faith journey. The Israelites had made following God more complicated and difficult than it needed to be. And in the mess, they had entirely missed the primary point, which was relationship. The point that from the beginning of time, the almighty creator who spoke the universe into existence desires to be in relationship with mankind. So Micah received from God how to do this follower of God thing well. This would have sounded crazy to an Israelite faithfully practicing the rituals and sacrifices. It was too easy. So what does Micah say again in verse 8? This is what he said. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Yeah, yeah, we're ready, Micah. We're ready. How many bulls? What can I kill? No, he says, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What? No stuff? Let's all say these three things together. Come on, you can do it. Let's do it together. Do justice. Love kindness. There you go. Walk humbly with your God. So let's look at these. Doing or seeking justice. You know, it's not just a matter of not doing wrong things. It's changing our attitude, our beliefs, then speaking up or even acting when we see injustice. You see, doing justice is an action, not an inaction. I'm not talking about being politically correct. That drives me crazy. But that's what, how the Israelites were behaving, acting the right way, sucking up and saying the right stuff. All the while, their hearts and attitude was wrong. They weren't seeking God, which would have resulted in loving people. Micah 1.7, it says, Speaking about Samaria, the Lord says, All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them. Oh, wouldn't that be something to run central as a brothel, you know, and then uh, use the proceeds to pay for ministry? Well, that's what was going on. Micah saw the nation of Israel overlooking the poor treatment of widows. In Micah 2.9, we read, they drive out the women from their houses. He saw orphans being left to beg, unjust business dealings, robbery. You know, I can hear the defense. You know, I'm not mistreating widows or I'm not abusing orphans. That's wrong. Well, doing justice may mean building relationship with someone in need and understanding their life a little bit more. We see children growing up without a home, mums and dads. You know, seeking justice may be supporting families involved in the foster care or adoption programs, or being a big brother or big sister, or even joining our fantastic team of youth leaders and, and teachers right here at Central. Today, we see tons of civil unrest in our country and around the world. We may say, yeah, but I don't beat up on people or show racism based on color. That's wrong. Well, maybe seeking justice means defending what's right when the people at work or even ourselves use derogatory terms or slander entire races of people. We may find that when we speak up for justice, we may just find a touch of prejudice lingering in our own hearts. Today we live in a society where thousands of babies are killed 
before they have the chance to be born. And you say, yeah, but I don't abort my baby. That's wrong. Well, maybe doing justice may mean supporting some efforts within the pro-life community or walking alongside a pregnant teenager, loving them with the non-judgmental love of Christ and pointing to alternatives. You know, I'd just like to pause here and say firmly that unplanned pregnancy, of course, can be a hugely difficult situation, which is exactly why I'm not judging, but rather challenging we Christians to actually show the love of Christ. Today, we live in a society that believes in the right to active euthanasia or doctor's assistance in dying. Again, very difficult situations, but how are we speaking up for people forced to make decisions in some of the most vulnerable times of their lives? Seeking justice, guys, might be something as simple as defending your wife and the kids are treating her with disrespect. Or seeking justice, moms and dads, may, may be something as simple as teaching your kids to advocate for the marginalized children in their peer groups. You may recall in the springtime here at Central, we enjoyed a sermon series from the Beatitudes. One of the final sermons was, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And one point that came through was perhaps we lack persecution of our faith because we never utter any God truths worthy of persecution. I think it can be said the same for justice. You know, if we never find ourselves in uncomfortable conversations, defending the weak or the vulnerable, it may be because we don't speak, stand, or support matters of justice from the perspective of Jesus Christ. Now the challenge with actively seeking justice is not to get carried away with emotion or self-righteous attitude, judgmenting, you know, or judging people. You know, we don't need any more holier-than-thou, Bible-thumping, belligerent Christians calling down fire and brimstone on condemning people to hell. We do not need that, but would also at the same time, we don't need Christians living lives in their little bubble too oblivious or timid that injustice prevails. I know it's a difficult balance. That was pretty heavy, wasn't it? Whew. All right, well, let's move on then. All right, so he said, what's next? We, we're into love kindness, also translated as mercy. You know, mercy's tough. I think it's tougher than, than grace, although we often use the terms interchangeably. You know, grace is receiving a gift that we don't deserve, whereas mercy is not receiving a punishment that we do deserve. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We are sinners. Our very nature condemns us. We deserve nothing good. Yet Christ came to earth and gave his life for us. He was the final sacrifice, giving us access to the way, the truth, and the life, enjoying eternity with him. Showing mercy, offering forgiveness is tough. You know, that person was a real jerk. They hurt me. Or, you know, that person begging on the streets, a real nuisance. But we have to be constantly reminded that no matter how undeserving a person is of our mercy, no matter how much they deserve the judgment for wronging me, it pales in comparison to the mercy that Christ showed us on the cross. So, do justice, love kindness, and finally, walk humbly with your God. You know, if we're not doing those first two things, like the Israelites in Micah's day, we'll find it very difficult to walk humbly with God. In Micah's day, the Israelites walked with God, literally. You know, they had the right diet, the right cleansing rituals, the temple sacrifices. Their whole calendar revolved around traditions that had been practiced for hundreds of years. What they lacked was the right heart, a heart that longed to be corrected, longed to repent so that they could more fully understand the love of God and then more effectively love people with that love. 
Walking humbly with God is daily seeking his will, looking to see the world, our country, our community, our neighbor, through the eyes of Jesus. Walking humbly with God means my feelings aren't hurt too easily. Why is it if I'm serving God, I'm more concerned with what people think than what God thinks? You know, I hear people say, sometimes even myself, you know, I'm not gonna serve in the church anymore. I'm just underappreciated, or, or somebody hurt my feelings. What? You know, Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Walking humbly with God is maintaining the perspective of a Christian, an eternal perspective rather than a temporal one. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, yes, we have a responsibility to function well within our society. Work hard, be honest, be wise with our finances, cherish every day we've been given. But we should always be more fired up about the life to come rather than our next vacation. We should always get more fired up about heaven than our retirement plans. You know, I found myself with people a few times just, you know, kind of shooting the breeze. You know, we're all complaining about aches, pains, maybe some illness, I don't know. And invariably somebody will say, you know, beats the alternative. Meaning, you know, it's better to be alive and uncomfortable than to be dead. Really? You mean that any existence here and now can compare to eternity to come? You know, hanging out at Starbucks can compare with seeing our Savior face to face? Putting all our hope in retirement, drinking Coronas on the beach will be as awesome as the presence of Almighty Creator? You know, as great as going for a motorcycle ride or, or boating, fishing, hunting, working, running a business, eating food, having sex, or even drinking a cold Dr. Pepper, you know, as well as all these things are, they are minor compared to knowing Jesus more intimately both now and in the life to come. Let's love this life. Let's use the talents God's given, celebrate the gifts we have, suck the marrow out of every day, but never lose sight of the reality that this life is a vapor. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mere dimly, then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Walking humbly is waking up each morning. Thank you, Lord, for this day. What blessings, what gifts are in store for me today? James 1, 17, you know, every good and perfect gift is from the from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I'll just conclude here. And in, in, in my humble opinion, you know, we live, live in the best country in the world. Even the poorest in our society have 10 times that of half the population of, of the planet. Are we going to use the affluence we have, the leisure time we have, to expand our own standard of living you know, buy more toys, go on nicer vacations? Or will we leverage these tremendous blessings to impact humanity generously with the love of Christ? Are we central going to learn to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, written like 2,700 years ago and still so appropriate, 
Lord, I just pray, teach each one of us, convict us, Lord, to repent and learn to walk humbly with you. In Jesus' name, amen.